Well, good morning. It is an honor to be back. Some of you don't know that I was back because maybe you weren't here when I was here the first time, but I'm with my wife, Amy, again. Raise your hand. She'll be at the table afterwards, but very excited to be here. have a very unique presentation for you. going to be talking about the creation evolution controversy in just a minute here. I do realize that many of you aren't familiar with me, so very, very quickly I'm going to go over my background because you might not know me from a hole in the ground. That's me and that's a hole in the ground. So <laughs> I only put that up there as a warning of a very, very dry sense of humor. I have to tell you I'm funny because you'd never figure that out on your own. Um, but I was raised in a Christian home and you can see very clearly that that is a Christian home. And my mom actually led me to Christ when I was five years old, backyard Bible club. Very, very thankful for my parents and the upbringing that I have. That's basically why I'm here today. So placed my trust in Christ at five. Sometime after that, I went bowling, and now I'm here. So it gets you up to speed. <laughs> Actually, a little bit more background. After I graduated from high school, I went to John Brown University in Arkansas to study mechanical engineering. Got a degree there, but then I became more interested in physics. They didn't have a physics major, so I left there and went back to Wisconsin, where I'm from, and went to the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater to get a degree in physics. And that's when my world changed quite a bit. Because I went from a small Christian college where my engineering professors opened up every class in prayer to a very large state university where my physics professors did not open up in prayer. Maybe they forgot. I should have reminded them. Um, they were all evolutionists, and some of them were atheists. And they were telling me, literally telling me, that everything I believed was wrong. And that made me very, very uncomfortable to be surrounded by those PhD scientists who I assumed had a lot of evidence for what they believed, it's another story, but I found out later they had nothing, zero. I asked each one of them. That's a different story, though. But I realized that even though I knew what I believed, I did not know why. I could not defend the Christian worldview. So God put it on my heart to start looking into things. So I've been looking into things for 38 years. <laughs> and about 17 years ago, felt called into full-time ministry, founded the Starting Point Project. It's all about our starting point, which is a Another talk, but Christians have as a starting point the belief that God exists and the Bible is the Word of God. And we use that as a foundation to define everything else. Along the way, I was also invited to be on the board of directors of a group called Logos Research Associates. This is the world's largest consortium of scientists who are Christians and creationists. Now, very quick note, this is not BioLogos. Some people have heard of that. BioLogos is a totally different group really promoting and pushing evolution within the Christian churches and Christian universities and Christian schools and all that. We are not biologos. We're doing the opposite. We're trying to show evidence that you can trust the Genesis creation account as written. So it's Logos Research Associates. The founding member of this group is John, Dr. John Sanford from Cornell University. He's famous for having invented something called the gene gun. Inserts genes into the DNA. Brilliant scientist, very, he was an atheist actually for much of his life, but very godly man, very strong Christian, very humble. Then there's Dr. John Baumgartner, he's a PhD geophysicist. He just happened to build the world's best 3D computer simulation of plate tectonics, just off the charts brilliant. Even secular geologists use that model to see how plates of the earth are moving. So those two scientists, myself and three other board members, as brilliant as these guys are, and they are brilliant, if they were here this morning with us, they would be the first to admit out of all six board members, I am the tallest. So, 
pretty proud of that. Um, actually, last we have monthly board meetings, and last November we had a board meeting, and they asked if I would step up as president, so now I'm president of the group, which means I have lost all respect for those other guys if they want me to be leading them. So, But I get to hang around them. They're doing literally cutting-edge research, and I get to take that and translate it into something we call English. So that's what I'm doing here today, a little summary. This is our 17th year of ministry. I've given over 3,000 lectures all over the United States, nine other countries, uh, U.S. Naval Academy many times. I've spoken to West Point officers and cadets. Lead Grand Canyon tours, which this is a picture from a few weeks ago. I was there at Horseshoe Bend. I'll talk about that a little bit more later in the talk. Started doing a new podcast this year every Friday. A new one comes out. They're free. It's just called Starting Point Podcast. And then I've authored three books. I'll talk about those at the very end. So let's get into this whole creation evolution topic. I had a couple options. I can either say a lot about like one thing. I could give you a talk on DNA, which is really, really cool. But it just leaves so many other unanswered questions. So I decided I'm going to talk a little about a lot of things. And because of that, this is going to be you. <laughs> You're going to be drinking from a fire hose. I always say, too, that James 1.19 says be slow to speak, but it doesn't say speak slow. So I go fast, and you're going to hear a lot of things. And even though I'm going to be talking about evolution, it's not really about evolution. It's about the authority of God's Word. When you die and stand before God or kneel before Him, more likely, He's not going to say, did you believe in evolution? No, okay, come on in. It's not really about evolution. It's about the authority of God's Word. Do you really, really trust what this says? Or, like most people... Go somewhere else, YouTube videos, your professor in college, whatever. Take that and use that information to translate God's Word the way you want it to, to decide what you're going to believe and what you're not going to believe, what's probably true and what's probably not. Many Christians do that. They learn certain things like, well, I, it says this, but, but I know better. You know, hath God said. Did God really say? Well, that's how Adam and Eve got messed up. They thought they knew better than God, and look where we are today. And we're no different than them. We're doing the same thing. We think we know better than God. So yeah, I know what it says, but I learned this and that. So that's what this talk is really about. It's about the authority of God's Word. Now certain things, when you think about them, you instantly connect them with evolution. Like the Big Bang. Well, yeah, there's this Big Bang, and then you know, things evolved over time. Certainly ape men. Ape men are directly connected to the idea of evolution. A fossil record, we're taught that the fossil record supports evolution. Carbon-14 dating, that's one of those evolutionary things, right? Dinosaurs, I mean, come on, the other things are millions of years old and evolved, and that's connected with evolution. Concept of natural selection and mutations, all those things. When you hear about them, you naturally think about evolution because that's what we're taught. Well, I'm going to go through every single one of these things, seriously. Some of them are going to go pretty fast it's got to fit in the sermon here. But I'm going to give you some highlights from each one of these things so you have a better understanding of the truth behind them and how it actually supports God's Word. So let's start out talking about the Big Bang. One of the most interesting things about the Big Bang is everyone thinks, well, yeah, that's, you know, the origin of the universe, right? The most interesting to me uh, about the Big Bang is that it doesn't explain the origin of the universe. Anyway, that's what it is. It's a kind of a massive explosion or whatever. No. The Big Bang doesn't even kick in until after you have what you need, the matter and energy. The Big Bang is just a description of how the speck expanded and formed 
the universe. It's not a force. It's just a description of what they think happened after you had stuff coming into being. So it doesn't explain the origin of the universe. I have a whole uh, series of talks on that that are free. I'll talk about, talk about those later. But I like to think of things really logically. When I do my podcast, I tell the audience, I'm not asking you to trust me. I'm not asking you to feel it in your heart. I said, I want you to think about everything I say. and We're not going to avoid any tough questions. So thinking about this topic logically, the origin of the universe, we only have three options. And here they are. The universe was created by nothing. It was created by something. Or it wasn't created at all. Meaning it has always existed. Those are the only options. This is not a religious statement. I'm not quoting scripture at this point. It is logic. There are no other options. So we're going to take a look at all three of these. Start out looking at the universe being created by nothing. Well, I mean, we can rule that out right away, right? I mean, nothing couldn't have created the universe. Nothing is nothing but nothing. That's why we call it nothing. Nothing can't do anything. Well, we can just rule that out right away. Keep your finger there because we're coming back. <laughs> Universe is created by something. It's another option. Okay, that's pretty vague. What was that something? Well, we have two sub-options as to what that something might have been. One option would be the universe itself. The universe created itself. The natural world created itself. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Something can't create itself. It has to exist to do something, and if it already exists, it's not creating itself. So we could rule that one out. The universe could not have created itself. The only other sub-option is something outside of the universe created it. Something outside of the natural world. Well, what is outside of the natural world? Well, that would be the supernatural world. Well, that's when the alarms are going off. It's like, oh, wait a minute, you can't go there. Separation of church and state, you've got to get that out of the school system. This was not a scientific decision. This was a philosophical decision to rule out anything supernatural. Because I want to know what experiments and tests they did in the laboratory. They're like, oh, hey, we just did this experiment. I guess there is no supernatural. Everything is natural. Well, there's no experiments that they've done. They can't. It's impossible to do a scientific experiment that says the supernatural does not exist and was not involved in the origin of this universe. It's just a decision to rule one out. In fact, they have hijacked the definition of science. A very simplistic initial definition would have been this discovering explanations for the natural world around us. Most scientists just assume to begin with, yeah, there's a God. Obviously, we couldn't be here if God hadn't created the universe. That was a given. And since God is a God of order, they expected to see order in his creation. So they started looking at the natural world to see how it operates. And they found these regularities and they formulated laws and, and developed certain disciplines of science. Most major areas of science today were birthed out of the Christian community by my Bible-believing Christians. Science owes its origins to Christianity. But watch how this definition has subtly changed. Now it's discovering natural explanations for the world around us. They have ruled out the supernatural right from the beginning. Here's an interesting quote from Leonard Susskind. He's a physicist. He said, two stories are possible. The first is creationist. God made man with some purpose that involved man's ability to appreciate and worship God. Let's forget that story. The whole point of science is to avoid such stories. Is that the point of science, to rule out anything supernatural? No, not at all. But they've just morphed it into doing that. Here's a quote from Dr. Scott Todd from Kansas State University. He said, even if all the data point to an intelligent designer, such an hypothesis is excluded from science because it's not naturalistic. 
So what's he saying? Even if all the data scream a God, a creator, a designer, we're just going to rule it out because that's not a natural explanation and we're only looking for natural explanations. They don't want the supernatural. So they will never, ever, ever find scientific evidence for creation, for a God, for a designer. Because if it looks that way, well, that can't be scientific evidence because they've changed the definition of science. Well, here's a simple exercise by way of analogy. Let's say I asked each one of you to write a 100-page research paper on the origin of that laptop. But here's the catch. Nowhere in your paper can you ever refer to human beings, men and women, scientists, engineers, programmers. You come up with some pretty crazy stories of how we got a laptop if you can't talk about people designing it and putting it together. Well, our science textbooks are filled with stories like that trying to explain the origin of the universe and the origin of life apart from purpose, apart from design, apart from creator, apart from God. So they come up with, oh, it's created by nothing, it was this and that, a lot of uh, stories that are not scientific. So we're going to rule out that it was created by something because it couldn't have created itself. And the only other option, it was created by something outside itself, would be, be supernatural. They don't want that one. So now we've got to rule that one out too. But that only leaves us with the third option that the universe has always existed. In a longer version of this talk, I go into a lot more detail, but guess what? Secular scientists have ruled that one out. But we'll get to that in just a second. If the universe has always existed, then it had no beginning. If it has no beginning, that means there's no begin-er. <laughs> if there's no begin-er, there's no creator. If there's no creator, that means God is unnecessary. This view also comes with free chocolate chip cookies as an enticement to get you to believe that. But as I mentioned before, the secular scientists have already ruled that one out. Because if the universe was eternally old, it would have run out of gas a long time ago. No energy left. And they talk about the expansion of the universe. There are a number of reasons of why they have concluded the universe is not eternal. It had a beginning. They had to come up with a beginning story. So introduce the Big Bang and all that. But the Big Bang doesn't start until after you have stuff. But we have a problem, you probably noticed it. We've ruled out all three. We only have three options, and we just ruled them all out. What are we going to do? Remember I told you to keep your finger on number one? We're back. That's the winner. They had to pick one. They don't like number two. Number three doesn't make any sense, so they got to go with something. Number one, the universe was created by nothing. So we have to talk about getting something from nothing. In fact, we have to talk about getting everything from nothing. Here's an interesting quote from Discover Magazine. So the universe burst into something from absolutely nothing, zero, nada. And as it got bigger, it became filled with even more stuff that came from absolutely nowhere. Now, it sounds kind of funny, but you shouldn't laugh because this is a science magazine written by PhD scientists. Guess what? That's not even a scientific statement to say that everything came from nothing. That goes against everything we know about science. You can't get something from nothing, the first law of thermodynamics. Here's two quotes from the same scientist. I got this years ago. I didn't write the guy's name down, so I can't remember who it was, but I believe it was like a theoretical physicist. This is what he said. Even where there's nothing, there's always something going on, you know? <laughs> you, can, you can just imagine that. Yeah, nothing, but yeah, something going on. Hey, you got a universe. He also said this. You have to remember that there's a difference between nothing and absolute nothing. <laughs> like if you had absolute nothing, of course you're not going to get a universe from that, but if you just have nothing... You could get a universe from that. That's not science. This is from Lawrence Krauss, a theoretical physicist who's still around today. Brilliant scientist. These scientists I'm quoting, they're brilliant. They, they seriously are brilliant. The Bible says there's a big difference between intelligence and wisdom. 
They're intelligent, but they lack wisdom, which is the ability to apply that, that knowledge. This is what he said. Even if you accept this argument that nothing is not nothing, you have to acknowledge that nothing is being used in a philosophical sense. But I don't really care about what nothing means to philosophers. I care about the nothing of reality. And if the nothing of reality is full of stuff, then I'll go with that. <laughs> what? Yeah, you can't get a universe out of nothing unless you redefine nothing to be something. Why don't we let nothing be nothing and something mean something? But he just conveniently says nothing is actually filled with stuff and he uses that stuff to create the universe. That's not science. <laughs> not even good philosophy, but this is, this is what they're teaching. Stephen Hawking, he was the world's leading theoretical physicist, passed away a few years ago. He also talked about getting something from nothing as he was an atheist, brilliant, brilliant scientist. He said, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Now, let's forget for a second how brilliant he was. He's a smart guy. Let's just think about what he said. I'm going to reword this slightly. Because there is something, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Wait a minute, if you have something, you don't have nothing. <laughs> and what was the something he mentioned? The law of gravity. What is the law of gravity? It's not a physical thing that you can weigh and paint and bend. It's a description of how the universe operates. But you can't have a description of how the universe operates unless you have a universe to describe. But if you have a universe to describe, you're not creating it out of nothing. So here's an example of a statement from a very brilliant scientist. That doesn't make any sense. Even other atheists called him out on that. It doesn't make any sense at all. So another argument for this universe not being an accident didn't come from a Big Bang. It's called the fine-tuning argument, or the anthropic principle, which is the idea that this universe looks so finely tuned and set up just right for life to be possible. If it wasn't just the way it is, life isn't possible. So it's like a soundboard with all the dials on it, hundreds or thousands of dials, and they're all tuned very, very, very precisely. You just bump one of these dials, and life is impossible. So did we get lucky there was a big bang and all the dials ended up needing to be right where they are? Is that by accident, or would that be evidence that God set all these factors, constants in physics and other things, so that life would be possible? We could look at tons of them. We're just going to look at two, just two examples. Gravitational constant and the cosmological constant. Start all looking at the gravitational constant, force of gravity. This is a formula of force of gravity between two objects. You guys probably already knew that, but the capital G there in the middle, that is the gravitational constant, and the number at the bottom, that's the value of the gravitational constant. I have a picture of the sun up there, just as a reminder for me to tell a story I usually share. When I was in college, getting my degree in physics, I was calculating things all the time. Then I graduated, and I didn't have to calculate a whole bunch of stuff anymore. And I was on an airplane one day, flying somewhere for my first job, and I was just bored out of my skull. And I was trying to find something to just waste time. I thought, what if I calculated something? That, that always takes time. What could I calculate? Well, I saw the sun rising out the window of the airplane. And I wondered, could I calculate the mass of the sun just from what I remembered in my head from physics? <laughs> kind of weird. You might not want to make eye contact with me later. <laughs> but I had that formula memorized and a bunch of other things memorized. So I got out a piece of paper. I sketched some diagrams. I wrote down the formulas and did some calculus. And I came up with a number. I had no idea if I was anywhere close. I got home, got out my physics book, which I still have today. I took a picture of it. My wife was like, there was a surprise. You still have your physics book. <laughs> um, looked up the value, and I was only 0.1% off. It was 99.9% .9 accurate. I was flying on an airplane. I just calculated the mass of the sun. 
what does that mean other than I'm really weird? <laughs> um, the stuff works. We don't argue with the science. This works. We sometimes differ with the opinions and guesses that some scientists have, but the science is, is great. So here's that gravitational constant. That's the value. The question is, why is the gravitational constant that value and not something else? If there was a Big Bang, it could have been anywhere. In fact, they tell us if you had a ruler that was so long, it would stretch from one side of the universe to the other side. That's a long ruler. Every inch on that ruler could represent a different possible value for that constant. If there was a Big Bang, it could have been anywhere on that ruler. Well, let's say that's where it is now. What if there was a Big Bang and it wasn't there? It was somewhere else. We could take that and slide it halfway across the universe, see how that affects us. We're not going to do that. We're just going to move this one inch, one notch. What would happen if it was there instead of one inch over? Animals anywhere near the size of people would be instantly crushed. Insects would have to have very thick legs to support themselves, and creatures are much bigger than that. They couldn't even survive. That's from messing with this constant a tiny, 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 tiny bit. So did we get lucky, or would this be evidence that it's there because God put it there as a design feature? And that's just one out of a few hundred we could look at. Here's the second one, the cosmological constant. This has to do with the energy density of empty space. You can forget about that. This constant is actually related to the idea of the Big Bang. I don't buy into the Big Bang. I have a two-part lecture series where I go into a lot more detail on that. Um, but even if the Big Bang was true, it's finely tuned, more so than it could ever be on its own. So this cosmological constant, very finely tuned, what are the chances that just that constant turned out right by accident? No God, no designer, no creator. Well, they've calculated it. There's just one chance in 100 million, billion, billion, billion. <laughs> that is a massive, massive number. Well, what's more interesting than that is, what are the chances that both of these two example constants turned out right by accident? cosmological constant and the gravitational constant. They've cal calculated that too. There's just one chance in 100 million, trillion, 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 trillion. <laughs> that is an unbelievably huge number that just screams that it cannot be an accident. In fact, here's a Harvard astronomer. He said, a common sense and satisfying interpretation of a world suggests the designing hand of a superintelligence. It just screams that this world we're living in is not an accident. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. God is the one who created this universe. His fingerprints are all over it. I could go on and on and on with that, but we have to keep moving. And we're going to go a little bit faster now. <laughs> Eight men. I mean, you, you go to the museums, you got the, they got skeletons. You can't argue with that. That's proof of evolution, right? Let's take a look at this. Some classical examples. This is Hesperopithecus Harold Cookii. Hesperopithecus just means ape of the Western world. Harold Cookii, it was discovered by a guy named Harold Cook. <laughs> they call it, the common name is Nebraska man because they found the evidence in Wyoming, right? No. <laughs> so here's Nebraska man. Everything you would want in an ape man. Very brutish-like face. He knows about Stone Age tools with a club there. His wife is next to him. She's making a fire. A little bit harder to see, but there's some domesticated animals with horses there and then some camels up in the corner. They f were able to figure out a lot about Nebraska man. It was very impressive. Well, so what was the evidence that they found to come up with all those details? One bone. And the bone was a tooth. How do you take a single tooth 
and make a whole ape man out of it. Turned out later, that tooth came from a pig. <laughs> it was a single pig's tooth, and they made an entire ape man out of it. I was speaking in Texas, and there was a Creation Evidence Museum down there, and I know the curator, so I stopped by to see him, and he said, hey, you know about Nebraska man? And I said, yeah, Hesperopithecus haralcuchia. He goes, yeah, I guess you do know him. He said, you know, they, did, they found more of those teeth, right? And they were pig's teeth. I said, yeah, I knew that. He goes, do you want to see one of those teeth? Do you want to hold it in your hand? I'm like, yeah. So this is one of the other teeth. This is a pig's tooth. That's let them know that the one tooth they had was not a human tooth. It's a pig's tooth, and the whole thing's a fraud. So, but they took that and made the entire ape man out of it because they wanted it to be an ape man. We have Piltdown Man, Eonthropus dawsoni. What was the evidence for this guy? We had some bones from a human skull and some bones from an ape jaw. And the guy who discovered it said he found it on the same skeleton. So it kind of looks human, but it kind of looks like an ape. So there's your ape man, right? You can't argue with that. And the world's leading authorities couldn't tell this guy filed the ape teeth down more flat to make him look human, and he discolored the bones to make him look older. This was in the textbooks for over 40 years. Think of all the students going through and learning about Piltdown Man. The Bible's wrong. You don't got this Adam and Eve stuff. You got ape men. Evolution's a fact. They have bones. These are scientists, not some silly mythological book you have. So finally, they had to throw that out because it's a complete fraud. A little bit more of a current example, Australopithecus afarensis, just means southern ape from the far region of Africa, Common name on this one was Lucy. Take a look at Lucy's eyes, specifically the whites of the eyes. Apes and chimps don't have whites of their eyes. So why did they put whites of the eyes in Lucy? They certainly didn't find the eyes. Eyes are long gone. They wanted her to look more human, so they just put them in there because they wanted it. A little humor break. I love the far side. Rocking the anthropological world, a second Lucy is discovered in southern Uganda. <laughs> That's my kind of humor. I thought that was pretty funny. So here are the bones they found for Lucy, discovered in 1974 by Donald Johansson. And what about the name Lucy? Why do they call her Lucy? Because where they were in their camp, they were in digging, they were listening to music by the Beatles, specifically Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. So when they found this one, they named her Lucy. Free trivia, I won't charge you for that one. <laughs> So, discovered it in 1974, found about 20% of the skeleton, claimed it was three and a half million years old, and that it walked upright. All right, here's what Lucy looks like in the museums. When you look at it, it looks pretty much like a chimpanzee, except standing more upright, like a human, which they posed her that way. And then look at the feet. The feet look a lot more like human feet than they do like chimpanzee feet. Why did they put human feet on Lucy? When they found Lucy, they didn't find the foot bones or the hand bones, but they put human feet on Lucy. Why? Because in rock layers, about a thousand miles away, lower in the earth that they say are much older, they found basically human footprints. Well, if humans were leaving those footprints, Lucy isn't on her way evolving into a human. They already exist. So they said, oh, Lucy must have left those footprints. Yep, she must have had human-like feet, so they put human feet on Lucy. Well, since they found that first skeleton, they found more australopithecines, and they found the foot bones and the hand bones, and they're long and curved, just like a chimpanzee. But you don't want to change museums. It costs money, and it ruins their story. Another one, and another one, and another one. 
We could go on and on. There are so many examples. I'm going to summarize this whole thing this way. Every ape man you have ever heard or ever will hear falls into one of three categories. Is either really just something like an ape that they tried to make look more human, that would be Lucy. Or it was really fully human that they tried to make look more ape-like, that would be Neanderthal man. They make it look very brutish. Today, Asians and Europeans have 1% to 3% Neanderthal DNA in them, meaning in the past they were intermarrying and having children. You can only do that with human beings. And scientists today know that, yes, Neanderthals, they were fully human. We didn't evolve from them. One scientist actually said we're basically degenerate Neanderthals because we're going downhill genetically. Third category is a mix of bones. Sometimes by accident, they put some bones they thought they were on the same skeleton, but they realized, no, one came from a chimp, one came from a human. Others are frauds, where they purposely put them together to have evidence for something that never happened. So that summarizes that. We're going to move on to the fossil record, which is related to the geologic column and Grand Canyon. And this, I have to be extremely brief. We could talk about this for weeks and months and years. This is Stephen Jay Gould. He's one of the world's, he was one of the world's leading evolutionists, passed away a few years ago. An evolutionist, a leading evolutionist, said when you look at that fossil record, you see two major features, sudden appearance and stasis. Okay, what does sudden appearance mean? When you see something in the rock record, like let's say a trilobite in the Cambrian layer, the Cambrian layer is one of the lowest layers in the geologic column. When you see that, it comes out of nowhere, fully formed, fully functional. Trilobites have the most complex eye known to man, and the first time they see it, it comes out of nowhere. It's not like you look lower, like, oh, yep, here's a quarter of a trilobite and three quarters, and it's, it's evolving. No, wham, it's there, fully formed, out of nowhere. The second thing is stasis, staying the same. So as they see these creatures that have come out of nowhere, fully formed, when they see them higher up in the rock record, they're not really changing. They're staying the same. That is not gradual evolution over hundreds of millions of years. That is creation, and it's a representation of ecological zones where creatures were living when the flood came. They got buried where they were living. 95% of the fossil record are sea creatures. We have sea creatures buried with dinosaur bones. How do you get sea creatures buried with dinosaur bones? Because you've got floodwaters coming from the oceans, which are rising up a mile high. It's just, that's a whole other talk. <laughs> i got to keep going. That's the Genesis flood. The Genesis flood really changes everything if it actually happened. But many Christians are like, well, and if it actually happened because, you know, secular scientists don't believe in it, so maybe it was just a story, maybe it was just a local flood or whatever. That's not what the Bible describes. Think of it this way. So you have that evolutionary tree. 3.8 billion years ago, a single-celled organism turned itself into every other life form on this planet. That's what Darwin talked about. So you've got the geologic column next to it, so all those fossils represent evolution over hundreds of millions of years of Earth history. That's the story we're all taught. I was taught that. Well, think of this. What if those layers will lay down catastrophically in a flood? There goes your hundreds of millions of years of Earth history and evolution and all that. It changes everything. That totally rules out evolution big time. And there's so much evidence for this. I have a three-part, four-part series on the flood, which is free. I'll talk about the resources at the end. You can watch it for free and see all the physical scientific evidences. There was a worldwide flood. And the Grand Canyon is one of the best places you can see those evidences. That's why we do tours of the Grand Canyon. In just a second, I'll show you a little promo video of our tours. We do not take people to the Grand Canyon to show them a big hole in the ground. You can do that on your own. And it's really cool. But after a couple hours, you're just like, it's cool. <laughs> they don't know what else to think. 
We take people to the Grand Canyon to show them you can trust every single word in the Bible. And on the, all throughout the tour, I share evidences. How do we know God exists? How do we know the Bible is the inspired word of God? How do you mentor your children and grandchildren? How do you graciously reach out, reach out to skeptics? And we show them evidences. There was a worldwide flood. And we'll stand you on the rim there and point out all these things. It is absolutely phenomenal. So I'll show you the, the promo video here. Welcome to the Grand Canyon. You've all seen pictures. Come and see the real thing. Jay Sigurd here with the Starting Point Project to invite you to come along on one of our Grand Canyon tours where you will be on the top rim of the canyon looking down and you'll also get to be on the Colorado River. And all throughout our trip, we share scientific evidences that there really was a worldwide flood, just like we learned from Genesis 6 through 8. We know there was worldwide flood action, but not always the same way you see here. We want to take you from being in a position where you are praying and hoping that no one asks you about this flood story and Noah's Ark and all that, to a and being able to really be equipped to defend that theory. Chance to learn a little bit more about just what God's done in the past and his beautiful world that he created. The only explanation for the canyon is really catastrophic water action. Easy to understand, but yet profound. It helps me to articulate what I believe so much better. You'll be so excited about the authority of God's word that it can be trusted from cover to cover so that you can be more emboldened when you're graciously sharing the gospel message with those around you. The problem isn't the evidence because facts don't speak for themselves. What was your favorite part? The dinosaur tracks. Dinosaur tracks? Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's unbelievable. You have to see it in person. It is an amazing place to visit and we want to go on this journey with you, so get a hold of us to learn about the details of our trips, which you can find at thestartingpointproject.com. So if you're ever interested in going to the canyon, many of you have probably already been there and you saw a big hole in the ground, um, we have brochures at the table, we happened to have a tour in October, which a group had signed up for and they had to back out. And so we have quite a few seats available and we're actually gonna make them 50% off because we want bodies in the seats. I, I don't want a half empty bus there because this, this is life changing. It will fire you up so much in your faith. So if you're interested, we'll have to know very soon because we need to close the window with all the hotel rooms reserved. Again, you stay in hotels, it's walking on a flat paved path, you're not climbing up hills, not falling off the edge, it's very smooth sailing on the rafting. It's just a lot of fun, very exciting. So if you're interested, grab one of our brochures, see me afterwards, go to our website, you get a lot of detail there, but if you're serious about it, you wanna get a hold of us soon because I'm making this offer to the pastor's conference too. So they might fill the bus. Uh, so anyway, if you're interested, get a hold of us. It's just really, really exciting. Back to the talk. Another topic, carbon-14. I mean, that's definitely related to evolution and supportive of that. I mean, it certainly isn't a Bible thing, right? Well, I'm going to tell you about the carbon-14 trump card. Not a political statement. Um, what happens is a skeptic and a Christian can be talking. A skeptic might say to the Christian, do you really believe all that creation stuff in six days or whatever? He says, well, I guess so. And what about carbon-14 dating? 
And the Christian might say, well, I don't really know much about carbon-14 dating. What about it? Well, it proves the earth is billions of years old and the Bible's wrong. I don't know much about it. Yeah, you, you have your little myth book there, but I, I live in the real world. We deal with science. We're proving things and inventing things and curing diseases and all this stuff, and they walk away, and you're just completely humiliated, embarrassed, thinking, I don't know if I want to share my faith anymore. Well, if anyone ever says something like that to you, it proves one thing. The person who said that knows nothing about carbon-14 dating. Most likely, they just heard that from someone else, who heard it from someone else, who heard it from someone else. And it works for them all the time until they run into someone who knows a little bit about carbon-14 dating. And when I'm done with this short segment, you will know a little bit about carbon-14 dating, and they won't be able to pull this over on you. Two points, pretty simple. Carbon-14 can only be used to date things that were once living. You're not dating rocks with carbon-14. So they say, oh, the Earth is 4.6 billion years old. Prove my carbon-14. No, you can't date rocks with it. You can date fossils and skin and things like that. Secondly, no scientist on the planet would ever, ever, ever use carbon-14 to date something that they think is really old. 100,000 years, 2 million, 2 billion, whatever. Because carbon-14 decays away at a certain rate, it's gone after a few tens of thousands of years. Just gone. So if something is 100,000 years old or 2 million, there's no carbon-14 left to date, so they would never even think about doing that. It does not support evolution when it's done properly. And you know all the factors behind it. Uh, the dates get corrected, and they, a lot of them come within a range of about 4,500 years, which is really interesting because that's about when the flood would have been burying these creatures, and that's when they measure. They measure how long ago do these creatures die. So it, it actually backs up the biblical narrative. And there's a problem with it, too. We're finding it where it ain't supposed to be, <laughs> like coal. Coal is supposed to be 100, 200 million years old. Can't have carbon-14 in that because after a few tens of thousands of years, it's gone. We have yet to find a single piece of coal on the planet that doesn't still have carbon-14 in it. And guess what? You can make coal in a laboratory in a few hours. It doesn't take time. It takes the right conditions. You can make oil in a laboratory in a few hours. It doesn't take time. It takes the right conditions, which the flood would have provided. We find carbon-14 in diamonds. Diamonds are supposed to be at least one billion years old. You can't have any carbon while they're contaminated. No, you can't contaminate a diamond, the hardest substance known to man. Whatever carbon's in them, trapped in them when they were formed in the earth, it's still there. They can only be a few thousand years old tops. Dinosaurs, another topic. This one, I mean, this one throws a lot of Christians off because Christians not only aren't sure what they think about dinosaurs, they're not sure what they're supposed to think. It's like, I mean... Am I supposed to, like, not even believe in them? Like, how can you ignore me? And they, they do have the fossils and things. Like, you're just confused. So let's talk about dinosaurs very, very, very briefly. We associate them with millions of years. Any children's book, you open up first page. Millions of years ago, dinosaurs roamed the earth. I'm going to give you four reasons why there is absolutely no way dinosaur bones can be millions of years old. First of all, most dinosaur bones we find are still fresh. It's like a cow bone. <laughs> If they were 65 or 100 million years old, they should have fossilized a long time ago, but they're still fresh laying around. They have carbon-14 in them, which it can't be there. If they're millions of years old, it would have been long gone after a few thousand years. It's still there. Then even more interesting, some of you might have seen this. For the rest of you, you are about to see something that seriously very few people on the planet have ever seen. You are about to see soft tissue from a dinosaur bone. Watch this short video here. 
Does that look 65 or 100 million years old? Not a chance. Biological materials do not last that long. They can't. Why haven't you been hearing about this? Did they just discover it like a couple days ago and it hasn't hit the news cycle yet? That one was from 2005. They've been having some inklings back to 1995. Why aren't they talking about it? Because they cannot answer it. Oh, they'll talk about iron. Well, iron can extend the life of some, yeah, a little bit in certain circumstances, but you do too much, it destroys it. They don't have an answer. They won't talk about it until they come up with something, and they're not going to be able to come up with something. So creationists, we're doing our own excavations. I was on a dinosaur excavation a couple summers ago. We're finding it all over the place now in all these dinosaur bones. And now we even have DNA in dinosaur bones, which is more fragile than red blood cells and soft tissue. These are all evidences that these creatures died thousands of years ago in a worldwide flood, which there's so much evidence for. I have a three-part video series on dinosaurs, and that's free too, so you can get a lot more information on that. Two topics to go, natural selection. Natural selection, we certainly associate with the idea of evolution. What is it? Well, Darwin, in 1859, wrote The Origin of Species. That's not the full title of the book. Uh, so you open up the book, it says The Origin of Species, by means of natural selection. In fact, the title was even longer than that. Back then, they, were, they had really long titles for books and articles. The Origin of Species, by, natural, by means of natural selection, or the preservation of the favored races in the struggle for life. Favored races? I don't have time for that talk, but Darwinism is a basis for racism today. It's awful. Racism is terrible. And Darwinism really supports all that. That's another talk. But, so that's the full title of the talk here. But I talked about natural selection, which you also call the survival of the fittest. And here's an example of how it can work. Let's say there are two dogs living in the same area, greyhound and a husky. Well, if the climate starts to change over time, which one of these dogs is going to survive the best in the cold climate? Obviously, the huskies have longer, thicker fur. Greyhounds are going to start to die out. They might go extinct, but the huskies survive, reproduce. Husky puppies, pretty soon you got lots of huskies, but no greyhounds. That's survival of the fittest. We could also, though, call this survival of the luckiest. What if there's a volcano that erupts and kills all the huskies? Were they not fit? No, they're plenty fit, but they weren't lucky because they were around the volcano. And you might have the greyhounds still around because they didn't get hit by volcanic ash or whatever it was. So it can be the survival of the luckiest. But natural selection is a pretty good description of this concept of survival of the fittest. It does explain the survival, why the fittest survive. What it does not explain is the arrival of the fittest. How did we get greyhounds and huskies to begin with? Natural selection absolutely doesn't create anything new. It's not even a force. It's not a thing. It's a description of what we're observing in nature. But most people think Darwin was the one who came up with it, and it's proof of evolution. No, Edward Blythe, the creationist, talked about it 24 years before Darwin mentioned it, and it fits in perfectly with the creation narrative, that God creates everything perfect, Adam and Eve sin, things are going downhill, and some things don't survive as the environment changes, as mutations creep in. So, in a sense, it's a valid concept. Uh, here's a quote from an evolutionist. He said, natural selection must not be equated with evolution. Natural selection does not explain the origin of new variants, new traits, new genes. can't create anything new. It's just a description of why some things are going by the wayside over time. And, more importantly, it's not nature selecting. That makes it sound like nature is this force. It has volition. It has a will. And it's, I'm going to select these because I like those and these I'm going to get rid of. No, that's not happening at all. 
But when you think of natural selection, that's what you think of happening. Here's a simple analogy. When it gets cold outside, does a drop in temperature create a thermostat and a furnace in your house? No, you already have a thermostat and a furnace that were designed, and the thermostat is designed to detect temperature drops or increases, and then it knows what to do. It sends a signal to the furnace to turn it on to do what it was designed to do, to blow hot air through your house. It's a system that allows your house to be just fine when the environment around you changes. God designed creatures that could sense changes in their environment and they could trigger certain genes, turn them on and turn them off. It is highly complex. A lot of the mutations we see are not really accidental copying errors. They're genes being turned on and off uh, as cues when the environment happens and they go, oh, I know what to do with this. It's an extremely complex design feature. I wish I had time for that. The last topic here related to evolution, mutations. That's what drives evolution. So we have the rungs on the ladder, DNA coiled up ladder, the rungs are called nucleotides. So the order of these rungs, that's where you get all the information. And we talk about mutations being accidental copying errors, and that certainly happens. There's a whole other category of changes in the DNA that are triggered by the environment because they were pre-designed to do that. Design feature, very complex, I don't have time to go into that. Let's just talk about the accidental copying errors. Creatures reproduce, they copy their DNA, pass it on to their offspring, right? There's so much information in the DNA, sometimes copying errors happen. Those are the mutations. And evolution says that's what drives evolution. UC Berkeley says mutations are essential to evolution. They are the raw material of genetic variation. Without mutations, evolution could not occur. You don't have copying errors. You can't turn a single-cell organism into you and me. They rely on these accidental copying errors. I could talk for months and months and months on this and share some fascinating things about DNA, but I decided to, to share just this one snippet here. It's called the waiting time problem. How long do you have to wait for these accidental copying errors to produce evolution as they teach it? The Logos Research Associates that I'm on the board of with Dr. John Sanford invented the gene gun, Dr. John Baumgartner did the plate tectonics thing. Those two scientists and two other scientists created a scientific model called Mendel's Accountant. It's a software program that mimics living things. It mimics mutations. What actually happens is we study, we watch it happen, and we put it into the software so we can see what to expect out of mutations in the future. So they specifically wanted to know, can mutations produce the evolution that we're taught that it does? But they weren't looking at the entirety of evolution 3.8 billion years ago to today in all the life forms. They said, let's just take a look at human evolution, a little bit a part of this branch, where you have an ape-like creature that evolves and splits into two branches, one branch into the orangutans and, and apes and the chimpanzees, and the other branch went off the other direction into the hominoids and then modern man. So an ape-like creature evolving into eventually chimpanzees and humans at the same time. That's human evolution. That's what we're looking at. And they tell us it took six million years. And there are at least 300 million differences in our DNA, in the rungs on the ladder. 300 million differences between chimps today and humans. So evolution has to produce those differences over six million years. It's probably more like 600 million differences, but we'll be conservative. We'll just say 300 million differences. So that's our target. We have six million years to work with, and we have to come up with 300 million changes. But it's not just any kind of change. 
I can make changes today, just boom, 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 make random changes. That won't help. You have to make concerted, positive, coordinated, synthesized changes in the same area that these things can come together to build something eventually. Random changes won't do that. They have to be coordinated and related to each other. You need 300 million of those as you're making accidental changes here. So can that happen? Well, they asked their software, how long would it take to get two changes? We need 300 million. We've got to start somewhere. How long would it take to make two changes, two rungs of the ladder, two nucleotides? It would take 84 million years to get two changes, and that's nothing. Okay, how about eight changes? Eight rungs of the ladder, eight nucleotides. That's equivalent to like writing the English word yes. If you saw the word yes on a piece of paper, you wouldn't think, oh, I almost have all the information I need to make a nuclear reactor. No, you have the word yes. That's what this is. We're, we're just going to make the word yes by mutations. How long would it take to get eight changes in the word yes? It would take 18 and a half billion years. That's longer than they say the universe has been around. They say 13.8 for the universe. This is 18 and a half billion years. So let's summarize this thing. We could give the evolutionists more than 3,000 times the amount of time they want. They need 6 million years. We'll give them 18 and a half billion years. And they can still only come up with zero. 0.000027% of what they need. It's not going to happen. In fact, every time we reproduce as humans, we're adding another 100 mutations to our DNA. It caused one Russian scientist from the University of Michigan to say, why have we not died 100 times over? If we've been evolving for 6 million years and we keep adding 100 mistakes each time, we should have hit something called error catastrophe. You make random changes to programming code. I did programming for 12 years. You make random changes to your computer programming code, you're not going to make it better. You're going to make it worse. It's going to die. Error catastrophe. We shouldn't function anymore if we had 6 million years of making these mistakes. But hey, we're still here. Maybe we haven't been around for millions of years evolving, as they say. So mutations, don't cut it. They will not drive evolution. Uh, there are evidence against evolution. So every single one of these things we looked at going super fast are not evidences for evolution, but they fit in perfectly with the creation narrative. I could re-give this talk and now talk more about the creation side. It's just so much. It was really hard for me to decide what to include and what not to include. I, I finished this at 9.30 last night. <laughs> so, uh, so this is a new talk. My wife likes this because she's never heard it before. <laughs> so um, every, every other talk she's heard many, many times. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Again, maybe, maybe just God knows what he's talking about. <laughs> and maybe you could actually trust every single thing in here. If, if you don't, if you're going with some other source, you have to believe. God told Moses to write all this in the creation account. God's like, ah, I know they're going to believe the six-day thing and the flood and all that, but I didn't really mean any of that. But eventually, the old modern scientists realized I meant something just completely different. That defames God. I mean, that just, that's not a good view of God at all. We should be saying, I might not understand all this. I might not even like all of it. <laughs> but this is your word, God. Help me understand it as best as I can through the power of the Holy Spirit and help me then be obedient and share what it says with others. So this talk, it's really about the authority of God's word. And you have to ask yourself this question. Do you, as a Christian here this morning, do you really trust God's word? Or are you going somewhere else and learning about the Big Bang and evolution and all these, all these other issues? 
And then you come to God's Word and decide what you're going to buy into and what you're willing, willing to and what you're not. Because most Christians do that to some extent. Like, well, I don't know what this could happen. It probably is just poetic, right? Genesis is not poetry. <laughs> Genesis is literal historical Hebrew narrative. God says this actually happened. That's what he's actually saying when we look at the context. There's no shortage of issues that are thrown at us today. I have a whole other talk where I go into to this. And it's not that any one of these is too difficult. It's that they're overwhelming the system. There's just too many of them. Like the guy on the stage, you keep the plate spinning. We're, just, we're overwhelmed with these things. Bad news is we can't change these things. Worst news is it's getting worse. The good news is God's not asking us to fix all those things. And here's a very important point. No matter which of these points anyone ever brings up, it should never be your philosophy versus theirs. Who are we that the whole world should care what we think about any of these things? Someone brings one up, you should say, hey, interesting topic. Let me see what God's Word says about that. And if they have a problem with what you're sharing, it's not with you. It's with God's Word. And someday they will be accountable for that. It's just up to us to very graciously help them understand why there are so many problems with these issues. It's not the way God created things. That's why we call our ministry the Starting Point Project. We always turn to God's Word no matter what we're dealing with because the Bible has the answer for us. So very, very quickly, the resources, I used to hate talking about our resources, but now almost everything we have is free. So the resource table is over here. We have right now 34 and growing, 34 streamable video titles uh, on the flood, on creation evolution, on lots of, on the authority of scripture, five-part series on the authority of scripture. That's all free. You can get it from our website. I mentioned the podcast that I started doing. We've already reached the top 5% around the world, the podcast, which is just blowing me away. It's, it's all God. Those are free, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Um, also, a free email, monthly newsletter. You can sign up at the table, or you can go right to our website and sign up there. It comes out once a month, an email, lots of great information in it. I write a monthly article to get you to think a little deeper about uh, Scripture and what it has to say. Those are in the newsletter, plus we post them afterwards on the website, so you can see all the past ones archived on our website for free. I've done a lot of live stream broadcasts in the past. We put those up on the website for free. And then I've written a pocket guide for the inspiration of Scripture. So if someone says, oh, I don't believe the Bible's from God. It's just made up by a bunch of guys. You can get that out. It's really small. It fits in your pocket. Double-sided. has four categories of evidence of how we know absolutely for sure the Bible's the inspired Word of God. We have a few left. I have to save some for the pastor's conference. But those are free as well. So lots of free resources. The only thing that we're selling or the copies of my book, because it costs us a fair amount to publish them and print them and ship them across the country. The creation book that's over there, I've been told by some of the world's leading scientists, they think it's the best overview that's out there, which I was honored to hear. But we've even discounted those. You can get all three books for 30 bucks. And I don't talk about this much, but I've been speaking for 38 years, have never charged a penny for what we do ever. We have monthly supporters. If people decide to become a monthly supporter, God puts that on your heart. We'll give you the books for free. So, so everything we would have at that point is free. And then I mentioned the Grand Canyon Tour. You want to jump on that if you're at all interested. And you can always get a hold of us through our website, thestartingpointproject.com. Again, I, I don't really apologize for talking so fast because I, I always do. Even if it gave me 10 hours, I've talked faster 10 hours. But the reason I shared all this with you is so that you in turn can go out and win arguments with people and make them look foolish, right? No. I shared this with you to fire you up in your faith about the authority of God's word so that you will more confidently and more graciously go out and share the gospel message with those around us. The worse the world gets, it's getting bad, 
the easier it should be to do that because people are screaming for hope and we're the ones who have it in Jesus Christ. So you'd be confident doing that, knowing if they throw in your face carbon-14 dating, dinosaurs, violence in the Bible, evil in the world today, errors and contradictions in the Bible, whatever it is, even if you don't remember the answers, even if all you remember is some weird redhead guy was at your church, you don't know what he said, <laughs> you just remember you can trust the Bible and you can always get back to them with answers. But share the gospel message. Don't win some argument. Share the gospel message with a lost and dying world. So I'm going to close in a word of prayer. I'll be around up front for a while. If you have any additional questions, again, you can always contact us through our website.